tuning into our podcast episode. Today we're going to be exploring three different elements of trauma-informed working to help get an all-round perspective on how organisations, practitioners and the systems that we operate in can all work from a trauma-informed lens. I'm Moira Hutton and I'm the Sexual Violence Service Manager at Calan DVS. Over the past year, my team and I have been developing the latest project, a trauma-informed sexual violence service for domestic abuse survivors who are being supported by Calan, but are also in need of specialist therapeutic support after being subjected to sexual abuse. Our service has been shaped by the key principles of trauma-informed working, like collaboration, trust, empowerment, choice, cultural consideration, safety and peer support. And as a leader within this team, it was essential for me to try and model these principles to help create a supportive, compassionate and inclusive environment where we're considerate to the fact that each one of us is exposed to some form of trauma on a daily basis at work, but also that all of us will have experienced some form of trauma in our lives outside of work. Prior to working within Calan, I'd spent over 16 years in frontline domestic and sexual abuse services as a trained ISVA and IDVA, and working with some of the most marginalised and traumatised survivors of abuse during the eight years I spent supporting street sex workers who'd been physically and sexually abused. As a survivor myself, trauma-informed working has always been something that I resonate with, personally and professionally. And it's been something that I felt with intuitive to my way of working before I found out that it had a name. After spending the past three years in a leadership position, I was becoming acutely aware of how trauma can infiltrate frontline teams, organisations and the wider systems that we work within. This has led me to be having some incredibly interesting conversations with people who were noticing similar things, but were unable to find wider discussions on the topic. So on that note, this podcast is aimed at people who already have a foundation of knowledge and experience of trauma-informed principles. It's not an introduction to trauma-informed practice, and there is a wealth of content that can provide that foundation, and we can put links out. As is the nature of talking about trauma, there might be occasions today where the content is difficult to hear. So if you're not in the right headspace for that, then please look after yourself and listen to us at a later date. So that leads me quite nicely into introducing the three guests that I'm excited to hear for this discussion. Firstly, we're going to be talking to Ananya Reynolds, a sexual violence support worker within the Lotus Project. She's a qualified counsellor. Ananya is going to be giving us her perspective of working with survivors of sexual abuse in a trauma-informed way, whilst also sharing some of the strategies she's implemented when ensuring that people that she supports are not re-traumatised by the experience of receiving support. Hi, Ananya. Hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Secondly, I want to introduce Natalie Griffiths. Natalie has been a practising therapist for over 10 years and has a particular focus on somatic trauma therapy, clinical supervision and group supervision for frontline teams and charities. Natalie's here to share her expertise on supporting frontline teams who are experiencing burnout and to explore how parallel processes can play out in a traumatised team. Hi, Annette. Hello. Finally, we're going to be talking with Hazel Renouf, who's the Trauma-Informed Systems Manager for Bristol, North Somerset and South Gloucestershire Integrated Care Board. Hazel is a registered social worker, guest lecturer and has worked in the field of trauma for 15 years. She's especially interested in working with women with multiple disadvantages within the criminal justice system and is a safeguarding lead on the Board of Trustees for the amazing charity Women in Prison. Hello, Hazel. Hello. Well, it's making me feel really excited to be here with all three of you today. And I know that over the years I've had conversations with all three of you about the nuances and complexities of trauma-informed care. So I'm really glad that we get to the chance to explore this and share these thoughts more widely. I watched a YouTube video recently by the incredible Dr. Karen Treisman, who is a well-renowned trauma-informed psychologist and source of immense knowledge about trauma-informed care. The video is explaining how trauma-informed working isn't just about being nice. And this is something that really stuck with me as a 
I found sometimes trauma-informed care can be seen as a little bit pink and fluffy. However, I know that there's so much more to it than that. I've seen the benefits of supporting survivors and staff through a trauma-informed lens. And I've also been supported in a trauma-informed way by managers and through my clinical supervisors. So I wanted to, the opportunity to bring the four of us together to explore this from some different perspectives. So, Ananya, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So, I'm Ananya, very, very happy to be here. <laughs> when I first met you, we really bonded over our shared passion for trauma-informed practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew that you'd be a perfect fit for the Lotus Project. And I tell you that every day. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering whether you would be able to tell me a little bit about why trauma-informed working resonated so much with you um, and the way that you worked. Yeah, I've obviously taken some time to think about it. Um, and then what you were just saying then about um, it almost being intuitive, um, when I came across the, the, the label of trauma-informed practice, um, I sort of thought, oh, so that's what I've been doing. <laughs> uh, it gave a, a name to how um, my sort of natural curiosity plays out when I'm supporting now survivors and while I've done my counselling training and my practice. Um, and I've always been somebody that wanted to consider the bigger picture. Um, I was one of those uh, children that would sort of say, oh, but but why? Why? And I've always been that. <laughs> and now I have those children who ask me the why question. Um, yeah. <laughs> nice bit of just desserts there. Um, but because of that, um, you know, I recognise that my curiosity comes into my practice. Um, I recognise that survivors do become either pathologized or labeled or uh, told that there's something wrong and they must access support and that you know that they need they need x y and z um and often the question that hasn't been asked is yes but but what happened um and that's you know that's often where i start um i've always all but disregarded referrals and labels <laughs> um you know just briefly looking over them and just thinking okay so this is a new opportunity to get to know somebody um to hear their story provide them with a safe space um and you know that is the foundation for you know that first session that initial meeting and that is the theme of how i choose to work um and support survivors um, you know, through the 12 sessions that we provide with the Lotus Project. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, what you just said was really key because you're starting working with somebody from, like you said, like a, a blank slate. You know, you don't want to be entering into a new relationship with, uh, with somebody that you're working with, with any sort of preconceived ideas, uh, any labels. And we know, don't we, that especially mental health, like diagnostic labels can really taint the way that somebody is seen from a referral form. And yeah. I think it's really yeah. key, isn't it, to, to sort of separate the person from that um, diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, you know, when I came across things like the book, uh, Drop the Disorder and, you know, the British Psychological Society's Power Threat Meaning Framework, and as, you know, as all of this is becoming... Um, more palatable there's a lot more information out there now and even survivors themselves are, have access mm. to information um, and wanting to work in that way and really translating that and hopefully communicating that in my support sessions that that you know is fundamental to how mm. I want to work with them yeah yeah it always it gets results <laughs> and it always feels good and it feels authentic yeah um, and that's, you know, that's why trauma-informed working really resonates with who I am and the way that I support survivors. Do, do, you, do you find, Ananya, that when you're um, sort of approaching that idea with survivors that, um, you know, you're not your diagnosis? We know so many people have the diagnosis, don't they? And it can be really, it can be really helpful for people to sort of put a name to something. But do you find when you're exploring that with somebody that they are, open to that new way of looking at it like actually looking at the contents context of their experience rather than sort of looking at their experiences as a, 
and mental illness? Yeah, um, I think it, they can be very closed off to it. Um, and that's just, you know, the way it is, particularly for someone who has maybe um, had a lot of validation through through mm -hmm. their diagnosis. And, you know, that all in, in context that makes perfect sense. Um, but when you provide people, I think, with the opportunity to look outside of that, explore it, mm -hmm. um, you know, tentatively offer them, you know, like I said, a safe space to explore it further and what's happened to them. Um, all of that drops to the side, you know, they, yeah. you're not there looking to adjust medication. You're not there to, you know, you, you, the responsibility doesn't lie with you on that part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the freedom that comes with, well, you know, not working in that way. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity and always, always so humbled by survivors showing up, you know, and wanting to know what got them there to that space, you know, what has yeah. them sat there in front of you, um, you know, time and time again, um, just in awe, always in awe of the women that I get to support. Um, and the it survivors takes a lot of courage. Support. Yeah, it takes a lot of absolutely. courage, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you think the key elements are um, that, that you work within when you're supporting a survivor in a trauma-informed way? Um, again, so obviously the application of that curiosity and then staying as close to their um, experience. So what they have to say about what happened to them. Um, quite often people will tell you um, that they've been told maybe that they need to come for some support um, but they're not really quite sure why they're there whereas others obviously have heard about the service and they're like yes I you know I want to delve into this I want mm -hmm. to look into it um, it's understanding for them what safety even means um, is key so for some people um, you know people need people um, and we are relational human beings and for me I'm aware that some survivors come with fantastic social support. Um, they have had safe, you know, numerous safe relationships, and then they have been subjected to sexual violence, and mm -hmm. all of that gets thrown out of the water. And you know, we've we've got to examine that. Uh, and then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who have experienced little to no um, relational safety, um, and that, you know, again gives you a platform for understanding that maybe initially that therapeutic presence is going to feel super unsafe uh they mm -hmm. might not trust you they might be distrusting um and to normalize that and allow that to be what it is um and just continue to be committed to um communicating that that this is a safe relationship and hopefully gaining and earning their trust um yeah, I think that's some some of it up. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. You're like you're so right. Like safety does look different to different people, doesn't it? And I think having a really flexible approach to all of those different meanings um, allows you to be um, sort of um, adaptable to a person's individual needs. And to to me as well, that's a really cool part of working in a trauma-informed way. It's not being rigid at all, is it? It's saying we are adapting and we're working with you at the centre of it. So, Inani, have you, what, what sort of impact have you noticed from working with uh, in a trauma-informed way with survivors? Um, again, I think that it works um you know the outcomes often speak for themselves um that for me being believed um by somebody um is the catalyst for change um and that's not always the case that I'm the first person that's believed them you know they, they maybe have been believed but as we know you know these the, particularly with the topic of sexual violence and the the taboo and the social stigma that surrounds it they've been believed and then maybe dismissed or believed and then told you need to get you know you should be getting over that by now um believed and then you know left with little to no support um so with that um I recognize that it's my you know opportunity to say I believe you and here are some of the things that you know might help you along on your journey um be that through psychoeducation um around trauma responses um you know listening out for hints and sort of like 
uh, what do I call it, like little clues in their story as to, okay, maybe a freeze response was activated. Do they have the language for that? What language are they using? Um, and, you know, rolling with how they feel uh, all the way through um, our support sessions, um, recognize, helping them recognize their window of tolerance and whether it's big, small, hyperarousal, you know, um, all those wonderful, wonderful terms, um, but hopefully using their language to, you know, and they do often have such just wonderful, colorful language for what their experience is and bringing that into the room and giving it some context. Um, yeah, I think the impact is um, understanding that survivors have survived. Um, they are there. They, you know, there's, there's, they've got there to that room in front of you, and there's no, you know, there's no room to judge um, any arguably, and I'm abbreviating like negative coping mechanisms, because it, it's got them to where they are, and you know, offering them um, that no judgment, that no blame. Um, that pure understanding of, yeah, you know, of course, that's how you've coped. That makes perfect sense in the context of what's gone on for you. Um, just is the catalyst for them going, oh, so where is the space that where maybe it could change? Or is there space for it to change? Are there real barriers to what's, you know, going on for you? Um, are we working with real threat, perceived threat? You know, just really get into the crux of what's going on for them. Um and sometimes, you know, it happens in those first three sessions and then sometimes you get to session 12 and that's when it it all comes up, you know, and it's just really, really sticking with um, their experiences and, you know, really trusting uh, in their abilities to, to survive. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is so much, so, so much judgment out there within society in the ways that you... You know, when we think about coping mechanisms, what's like healthy, unhealthy, and we try and like not to use those terms. It's hard, isn't it? But, you know, actually it's understanding that, you know, people ha will find their own ways to cope because they, they're they dealing with uh, measurable pain. And, you know, any of us would do would do the same, trying to work in such a, so trying, to, trying to deal with such a horrific situation. So... I mean, we, I think it can be really challenging. Like, you know, you're going to be working with somebody, they're going to be talking about their own trauma. Um, and you've been with the, the experience that you have and we have as practitioners, um, knowing that you're opening up like a, a wound can be quite, uh, quite, can be quite scary. Um, so I'm just wondering, how, how do you ensure that survivors aren't re-traumatized after having such sort of complex conversations about the abuse they've experienced because there's a risk of that isn't there yeah absolutely uh, a massive risk and I think for me uh in my developing practice I can pinpoint the time where I probably uh veered into being almost too afraid to talk about things or being put off the idea of um you know bringing up trauma um in the counseling room because there is um there was a lot uh of this idea of oh you're going to re-traumatize them you're going to really scare them um you're going to cause problems for them um and with that obviously you learn to pace uh that's pacing sessions um but also again just trusting trusting that they know what they're doing and if somebody says that they are ready then you know it's it's your judgment only on whether they've got the uh, tools to cope outside of the session if things are coming up. Um, but also, you know, what can you use in the room? Um, I've used a hair clip. <laughs> so I've had somebody who decided to disclose. They were over the phone and we we talked to, for a couple of sessions and that was there. Uh, and I said, just tell me what's in front of you. And they said there was a hair clip. And I said, OK, well, I know it's going to be really strange, but I might bring your attention back to that clip. Um, and you can tell me the colour of it, the shape of it. Um, you know, we're just going to check out how that feels. And I remember the sense that they were thinking this sounds this all sounds a bit crazy, but it it was it was helpful. Um, and then I checked out if they wanted to carry on, and they did. And then you know it's about making sure that there's a bit of space towards the end of the session if it is going to need an extra bit of grounding. You know, those are the little practical things. But I think in its like entirety, it is about trusting that they 
they have the skills and they have got the coping you know if any if there has been anything that feels more towards that uh negative coping how under control is that do they you know do they feel okay about it um but ultimately um being scared of it they will it's they'll feel that if you're too scared that they'll be too scared as well to talk about it so uh, for me, I, you know, I practice my own little grounding techniques, be that in the room or in between sessions. They, they've they got this far and they're often reliving, as we know, through flashbacks or just general day-to-day life is very triggering for them. So in providing that safe space, um, you know, you're trusting in them to um, be able to bring themselves back to the present moment and maybe need a little bit of a helping hand in, in that as well. So... Yeah. Thanks, Ananya. I think it's really, really like, interesting what you're saying about, uh, you know, if you're feeling scared about talking about trauma, then they're going to feel that fear too. Um, you know, we're going to be talking to that in a minute about parallel processing. And, you know, it's very much sort of those things that, that play out. Um, and yeah, I I think it's so, so key to be able to offer, you know, that a, a safe space for somebody, you know, knowing that if they are, there are going to be lots of triggers outside in the world, and as a survivor, mm-hmm. you are going to get, um, you are going to experience like re-traumatization or be triggered throughout your life. Um, but it's mm-hmm. knowing that you can earn those skills to be able to contain it, and you can practice that in your one-to-one sessions, in your counselling sessions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just modelling that, you know, modelling that we that you do have the autonomy. Um, and as scary as it all is, yeah, you've got this far. And that, you know, that's a message that I'm always, you know, uh, communicating that everything they have done has got them to where they're at now um, and has helped them to survive uh, what they've been subjected to. Um, and, you know, trusting in them as individuals and and humans to just do mm-hmm. what, you know, is right for them. Um, and yeah, it might for an outsider sometimes it can all seem very bizarre um and lead to labeling and you know or you know questioning of their behavior but yeah i think once you start start to look beyond that again you just can't unsee it and you can't you know you can't stop that way of working once you've started so i'm very much on that train <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> take it off that train and on you <laughs> no i'm not getting off it i really really like it here <laughs> great oh well um so since uh, touching a little bit on thinking about parallel processes that uh makes me think leading quite nicely to speaking to nat so uh, thanks for joining us i I want to get on ananya's train yeah Um, no, it's so great to have you in this space. Um, oh, I know you've thanks. got a lot of experience supporting frontline staff in charities, especially charities that are working with people who suffer with homelessness, substance abuse, uh, mental health and other intersecting needs. And, um, you know, that obviously must have quite an impact on the frontline staff. From your experience, why do you think it's important for frontline teams to have access to clinical and group supervision? Yeah, I think, yeah, like the short version, that answer is that it's just uh, um, like a space to air, you know, um, concerns, frustrations, the difficult emotions around doing the work in the space that's supposed to be not judgmental. Yeah, which is up to the the supervisor or the facilitator to, to kind of build, really. Yeah, but that's the point, you know, and I think in a really cynical way, you know, it's the reason that this is offered is to make sure the service keeps working yeah. and that you retain your staff, mm. you know, like, um, so I think, you know, to kind of speak back to the thing you said at the beginning, you know, having a trauma informed environment is, it's not just fluffiness and yeah, being nice, you know what I mean? There's a, there's like a, there's a hardcore reason for this, you know what I mean? That there's mm-hmm. a lot of people in pain. We have limited resources. To address that pain this is one yeah. of the ways to do it you know so and i think the thing with supervision like the um like that there's a way of kind of i guess framing it like there's three points to supervision you know there's the normative the formative and the restorative 
Yeah, and the normative is about learning things, right? Let's say. Sorry, the normative is about what you're supposed to be doing, like the safeguarding stuff, I guess, which Hazel yeah. might speak to later, you know, um, or what the expectations of the organization is. Yeah, formative is learning stuff from your colleagues, mm. from your supervisor, or perhaps even remembering what you know yourself. Yeah, but I think the big part is the restorative, you know, is just kind of whether it's in a group or if it's with your, you know, in a one-to-one setting that you're reminded that actually you're doing the best that you can yeah. at that, you know, all the time, pretty much. Do you know what I mean? So if it's, if you're struggling, what do we need to do, you know, mm. so that you can continue, you know, doing the work in the best way possible. Yeah. So. Do, do you think that it's perhaps particularly hard for people who are working on the front line, especially with really, uh, with people who are incredibly traumatized to be able to make that separation, you know, to, to feel like they're not doing enough because there's always so much to do. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think especially within the context of the work that you do, like you and Ananya, you know, there are incredibly marginalized people quite a lot of the time, you know, Mm. who have not been heard. Yeah. And who get dismissed after being heard. Yeah. You know, so that it's really easy to go into superhero mode you know, and um, think I I have to fix this when that's not actually what our role is, you know, so, (laughs) you know, so I think that's, you know, kind of in the the theme of it being trauma informed, you know, is to kind of have realistic expectations about what it Mm. is that you're doing, whatever your frontline role is, you know, so that the temptation to go Mm. into superhero or rescuer mode is less. Yeah. And you're just making me think then because like, you know, as a, as a, as a manager, um, you know, you have, uh, you, you have like supervision with, with my team. I have supervision with staff. Um, and, you know, as much as I will try and uh, incorporate sort of uh, like therapeutic support in a sense in my like one-to-ones with the team, um, supervisions are also a space to be talking about the people's uh, caseloads and things like that. Um, but actually having, having an external source of supervision too can be really valuable, can't it? Because, you know, as much as you'll have that one-to-one with your, say, line manager, focusing on other people, thinking about the people you're supporting, your clinical supervisor can be the person that can be drawing that back onto yourself um, and helping you reflect on that case, on those cases and how they're impacting you. Yeah. Yeah, and again, that speaks to the safety thing which Mm. I thought was when Ananya was talking about you know for people who are experiencing therapy for the first time having no clue what's going to be going on you know how do you make that person safe you know so for people who aren't used to clinical supervision I think the idea that you could be totally honest and vulnerable about your experiences doing the work and then there's not going to be like a you know it's not likely to have like a managerial kind of um, performance (laughs) issue there Mm. you know Mm -hmm. seems really strange you know that that would actually happen at work you know, so I think it take, can take a while Yeah. for people, you know, to get used to that idea. A lot, yeah, a lot of people aren't used to that, are they? I mean, they might not necessarily be used to um, talking about their own feelings and experiences. They're used to hearing other people talking about theirs. Uh, so it can be quite a, a culture shift internally, can't it, to actually yes. start engaging with clinical supervision. You know, have that, what's the motivation? Why would I bother doing that when I'm so busy you know I've got people to call and I've got you know things to chase up but um but yeah I think like ultimately it's it's uh, it's like prevention isn't it it's not the sort of thing that you you can you do because you burn out it's the thing that you can do to help prevent you from burning out yes exactly mm. yeah and again I think that idea yeah like that you're you're heard you know so there's some kind of parallel process going on there. Do you know what I mean? The, the thing that you are, the container that you're offering for your client, you know, whatever that frontline role is, is that is then offered to you somewhere else. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, so in terms of like parallel processes, um, yeah. you know, we, we, you and I have spoken about it quite a lot, haven't we? Not? And, uh, and I think it's a really like, important thing to explore here because it's something that happens like a lot within yeah. organisations. It's something that happens, you know. I, th- I think it just, it's, it, we have to name it, don't we? Um, yeah. I was just wondering whether you could explain a little bit about what a parallel process is and, you know, how they impact teams. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's going to be easier to use an example or not, but I, th- I was thinking about um, 
again, when Ananya was talking and I thought about stigma and shame mm -hmm. around certain kinds of work, and then is the organization perhaps also absorbing some of that, you know, mm -hmm. that even though the organization might be really explicit about working with really difficult material, you know, that they're still knowing that society at large, perhaps, you know, really doesn't want to be hearing about this most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, for good reason, obviously. Yeah. But so the tendency to start to shut down difficult conversations within the organization itself mm. around what is actually happening, you know, in the field mm. where we're working. So I think that would be so a parallel process, maybe. Like unintentionally mirroring yes. like the silence that a survivor might be experiencing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, completely unintentional. I think that's the thing. The parallel process can yeah. stop as soon as you notice it. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to be in that sort of reflective space, a safe yeah. reflective space to be able to do that, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it takes a, a degree of like vulnerability to be able to 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 say when that's happening, especially if you're in like a leadership position. Um yeah. and to be able to address address that. Uh and it can have quite especially if it, if it goes unchecked, can't it? Like these parallel processes can have quite detrimental impacts to not just as individuals, but to teams. Yes. Because I think, you know, what is interesting is, you know, because when you think about like a board of trustees, let's say for a charity or a CEO of a charity, even quite often, right? Upper, like senior management, quite often don't have the same kind of emotional reflective spaces. They might have coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And stuff like that, you know, but like, you know, what are the professional challenges around this? But it's very much in a kind of task oriented or target oriented way. Mm. So the idea that the that but technically they're still holding all the emotion in the organization, you know. Yeah. So if 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 we haven't created a space for them to talk about that, too, then how can they model to the rest of us that we're supposed to be talking about that? You know, and then it, yeah, and then it kind of gets missed. Yeah, and I think sadly that can lead to cultures of like isolation and bullying, mm. you know, and then staff burnout or like certainly staff turnover being higher and perhaps the service not performing as well as it could. So, mm. yeah. so, so what what do you think you could or you know what have you sort of seen in the past that's worked to help like mitigate the um, detrimental impact of that mirroring? What I would say is, I think, like, again, listening to Ananya, it's great because just listening to her talk about client work, you can hear, like, all, yeah. the, like, all the same things are there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, okay, when we're working with clients who've experienced trauma, you know, you have to have grounding, you have to have anchoring, you have to have stabilization, right? So what does that look like in an organization? You know, does that mean, like, yes, your line management happens on a very predictable basis? You know what I mean? Uh, do you make people take their lunch breaks? away from their desks and <laughs> um, you know is there a union even do you know what I mean because it's like the idea that when we work with our clients you know we're at, we're allowed to ask them how well resourced they are mm. yeah you wouldn't expect your employer to be asking you those questions mm. <laughs> it's like so tell me what your home life is like you know what I mean like <laughs> get away from me so I think, you know, so it's, you know, so like, so then it's like, okay, so what's the employer's duty of care or responsibility? You know, what is the the scaffolding that they are building for you? Mm -hmm. You know, so, and is it, so it is, about, you know, it is about line management. It's about clear policies. Mm -hmm. It's about really clear, um, even, I hate to use this word, like key performance indicators, you know, all of those mm -hmm. things. It has to be really clear so that when you're collaborating in that trauma-informed way, you know exactly yeah. what you're supposed to be doing and your managers know exactly what they're supposed to be doing for you. Yeah. You know, so that if there's a disconnect there, it's like, okay, so something like to use counseling language, you know, something incongruent has happened here. Mm. You know, the expectations have crossed somehow. So why is that? Is it, has something come up in the work, you know, somehow, or is there a resourcing issue in the organization that means that they're not doing what they, um, originally were able to do you know there's a whole pile of stuff there so I think it's but it, to me it's about boundaries being super clear and about having mm. channels of communication also be very very clear so that yeah. the chances of there being a breakdown 
in that are minimized so that if if a problem is surfacing, everybody kind of knows what it is and we're all making empowered choices about how to deal with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I could, I've said this so often, but communication is key, isn't it? Um, and it isn't just about just chatting. That's not communication. It's about connecting um, mm. and, not, and not shying away from having conversations that might be challenging. You know, you're not, you don't gain anything by avoiding those. Um, like within our team, when people start, we, like I've introduced um, just doing like wellbeing action plans as part of mm. in, like in, inductions. And that's just between, you know, the, the staff member and me. Um, and it's also, it's up to, it's up to that person to decide how much they want to, to write on that. I do say to them, you don't know me yet, so I don't expect you to <laughs> be telling me everything, but this is an opportunity for us to, to you know, get to know each other and to get to know different, um, like, uh, not triggers, but, you know, sort of points where, you know, if, if, if your mental health is going to decline, then, you know, we've already had, like, prior discussions. Um, and I don't think, I think, I think, you know, the reason why I did that was because I wanted to start off that conversation from the, from the off, and to know yeah. that it was going to be a welcome conversation to talk about like mental health, that this is always going to be something that we're going to be bringing into our supervisions and our conversations. Um, but I guess sometimes that can feel like a, a challenging thing to do, perhaps if, you know, like Ananya and I were saying, if that sort of safe, if you don't necessarily feel equipped to be able to hold that space in the first place. Um, yeah. So I'm just, uh, I'm just, I think I really, what you were saying that about like having, um, you know, reflective spaces throughout the organisation, I think, is really key, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's so important, to, even if, you know, you've got perhaps a management team that aren't working directly with survivors, that they're still offered a reflective space. And that could be group supervision, it could be with clinical yeah. one-to-one supervision. Um, yeah. yeah, or it's even if organisations, you know, depending on the size of it, you know, but is it like, are there enough, are there enough people interested in having a five-a-side football team, yeah. you know, or uh, yeah. doing like... Like, you know, once a week, like there's a walking lunch or just things like that, like just creating spaces where people can actually get together and just be with each other, I think, yeah. is immensely powerful, you know, because again, that's the same thing that we would suggest to the client groups, you know what I mean? So like, yeah, you know, and, and this reminds me of something you and I have spoken of before, you know what I mean? But like, we're not supposed to be perfect. Hmm as the workers, <laughs> you know, and if we can't admit our own vulnerabilities and our own struggles without pathologizing ourselves, yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, I'm, you know, we don't have to say, oh, I'm burnt out, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not feeling great, you know, maybe I'm going to burn out, so what am I going to do about it, you know, and yeah. again, how much responsibility does my employer have in that, in helping me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like there, you don't, you know, it's not the full responsibility of the employer to be managing, you know, their team's like mental health. Like it's a shared responsibility there, isn't yes. there? And, yeah. um, you know, like I think it can happen at times where team, teams can feel resentful if like there's like staff burnout and can place that blame perhaps on like the management team. Um, and although there might be uh, issues perhaps with their communication, um, it's okay. not the that full responsibility doesn't lie there, and um, I think that can sometimes be a hard message to to get across. Um, yeah, yeah, and again, I think that speaks to the, like a parallel process, depending on the, mm. the the client group that we're working with, because if we're having a group of people working with a group of people who are very much disempowered, you know, mm. because of marginalization or because of shame or stigma or whatever. And then if we start taking a bit of that on, we can start treating our managers like they're the bad guy. You know, it's the mm. old uh, drama triangle stuff Yeah, starts to play yeah. out. So I think, I think for me, what's important is if that stuff starts happening, just as we would in therapy, it's kind of like, okay, so why is it happening? Yeah. Not to judge the fact that it is happening. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. this is really useful information for us. What's happening? How are you feeling? You know, like, um, so to get people back into their place of safety, I suppose, you know, to kind of go like, yeah, the, you know, the bosses don't want us to fail either, you know, mm. so <laughs> why would we assume that they're, you know, <laughs> that they're signing us up to fail, right? So stuff like that. So I think it's really, yeah, it's just everything's information. Mm. You know? 
So yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you can you can learn from so much of that, can't you? Like rather than like being in that reactive space, like looking at it semi objectively, it's hard at the time, isn't it? But trying to look at it objectively and to think what yeah. why is this happening? And yeah, like you said, what can we learn from it? Yeah, like almost kind of, you know, like what's the organization's window of tolerance? Mm. <laughs> like, where is it at? You know, because I mean, like, you know, we did have the, our informal chat before, you know, but we were talking about stuff like the cost of living crisis, mm. COVID, and the climate emergency, you know, kind of things that are happening, you know. So, what's, you know, and in the, in the voluntary sector, in the public sector, especially, yeah, like the, the cost of living crisis is like, you know, everybody's window of tolerance has shrunk quite a bit. Yeah. So, you know, what are we going to do with that as a group of people? Yeah. Mm. I feel like we could uh, <laughs> do a completely separate podcast on that. Now. <laughs> yeah. well, no, but I think it, I mean, but I, I'm going to do. It's funny because when you know the first question that you asked about, like, what do you think is important for frontline teams of clinical and group supervision? I thought, like, yeah. shouldn't you also be asking Ananya and Hazel that? Because <laughs> yeah. I actually get the supervision. <laughs> You know, yeah. well, like, you know, I'm sitting on kind of like, obviously, I also have my own supervisor, right? But mm -hmm. like, so I think there is something about for the people doing the frontline work. Yeah. And yeah. Anya, I'm looking at you. Nobody can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I, don't know, I just think it's interesting. It's actually hear from the people mm -hmm. again, because I think that's the important thing with all this trauma informed stuff is we need to ask the people who are doing the work. Yeah. You know what yeah. what do they need and is it possible Absolutely. to provide it yeah, yeah. i mean I, I know for me when my frontline roles that like i've had roles where i haven't had clinical supervision or when i've been you know on the receiving end of a lot of uh, disclosures of trauma like day in day out relentless um and I know like, the impact it had on my mental health, well, you know, that it spilled out into my social life. It spilled out into my, so much more into my dreams, into my home life, because I didn't have a space to process it. Um, mm. And then, you know, from having, from, you know, really embracing it, it did take, it did take me a while to em embrace having like clinical supervision, not that you know, because I love talking about my feelings. <laughs> it wasn't always like that. Um, but because a lot of that was to do with not wanting to seem, like uh like an imposter um yeah. and, and you know and shame around um you know my feelings but you know once I sort of pushed past that I could really see the benefits of uh, having a reflective space with somebody who was objective I suppose to what was happening to me and you know the organization um yeah. I was thinking if if I didn't have that space so if I was working, say, with somebody um, and something kept coming up for me or I kept having a, a reaction or some, you know, like the stuff that you take to supervision, you know, the stuff that maybe twigs or bothers you or whatever that is. If I didn't have that space, my instant gut feeling is that I would probably turn to self-blame, judgment, mm -hmm. criticizing myself and not and thinking that... Um, you know, that, oh gosh, because I haven't got a space to process this and I'm obviously struggling to process it by myself, there must be something wrong with me, which again, we, which perpetuates in, you know, what, how we work with clients who don't have, haven't had space to process. So yeah. I, like I have said prior to, to this podcast, and I'm very lucky in that every role I have been in, I have debriefed or had supervision provided for me um be that group and and clinical so now I just couldn't imagine doing my practice without that safe space to go I'm working with somebody and I'm finding this difficult or it's bringing this up for me um and having just having that provided for you as a frontline worker and utilizing it and you know learning to be vulnerable and you know recognize that your supervisor isn't going to go tattling on you to your manager like I don't think they're doing a very good job um <laughs> it's, it's just amazing it, it just works doesn't it and it provides and you know if you're having that that makes you safer and able to provide better spaces and therapeutic support for who you're supporting so yeah absolutely isn't it because I think um I do have clinical supervision but in my role as 
you know, a manager within the NHS, essentially, that's really unusual. So a big part of my programme of work is to actually model trauma-informed practice at every level, so even in that more strategic space. So I have clinical supervision, and that's seen as quite a novelty and a bit sort of trailblazing, I guess, in that way. But I think it's a really important message. It's a really important message to say that that's not, this isn't just if you're working directly with people. Um, it's actually what, you know, is relevant to us all, and this is why it's beneficial. So we do lots of work in my clinical supervision around that and around that trauma-informed leadership aspect and what that is mm-hmm. and what that looks like and how that feels, actually. Um which I'm not too sure just yet how I'm going to model back or to kind of share within the system in a way which feels safe for me or just to try and work out what some of those key aspects are. But yes, it's, it does feel quite different in that way for me, I think. Mm. Being, you know, I've had years and years of clinical supervision in a, you know, working directly with people. But yeah, this is a slightly different setup in that way. Mm. I guess that's part of the, like, like you said, Hazel, well, the wider work that you're doing in terms of like creating like long-term systems change within, a, well, first you're within the NHS, so that's within a very big sort of organisation and system. Um, and But mod- but modelling it yourself, that's quite a, a, it's a big role to take on, isn't it? And I imagine probably quite yeah, a pressure. big sense of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, I have uh, I have no doubt about your ability to be able to tackle it because uh, I mean, Hazel, you and I have known each other for like nearly ten years now, which is nice. Um, and I think you know, from the time that we've known each other, like I, I've absolutely loved like your like continuous passion for change and for challenging injustice. Like I've always loved that about you, um, and I think that's why the role that you're doing now suits you because you're able to be in that position where you are challenging. Um, you know systems and looking to see how things could be done differently Um, but yeah I guess I wanted to open up a conversation with you Hazel about like the work that you're doing and um, starting that off thinking about a system in itself like you know that sounds a little can be a little bit abstract when we talk about systems change I think you know when I've I've heard that in the past and always wondered what 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 does that actually mean Um, I guess I'm just wondering like how a system in itself can be traumatic and how, how does that, you know, in the context of what we've already been talking about today? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big question with probably a very long answer. <laughs> but to try and summarise, I guess, some of the, the few ways that a system could be traumatic. I guess I was thinking about just how organisations and services often exist and function within silos in a way. So they focus on a specific symptom or presenting problem, don't necessarily always think about someone as a whole person with those interlinking and interwoven kind of experiences and needs. and it can sometimes feel to people quite deficit-based, often quite pathologizing, I guess, as well, thinking about those issues and labels and diagnosis, um, because the person exists, I guess, within that social and cultural context in that way. Um, and that's where experiences of trauma and adversity arise. And what we know about trauma and adversity is that the impact can be really widespread for people and it can impact them socially or in terms of their mental or physical health or in terms of their emotional, spiritual well-being. Um, And I guess working in silos and not recognising all those aspects of someone's life, I mean, they might not feel understood, they might not feel validated, their needs might not be met. Um, And that is, I guess, the context where further harm or re-traumatisation can occur. Um, I mean, thankfully, there is a growing recognition that one service can't do it all and the kind of emphasis on partnership working. And I guess that's the opportunity, I think, to bring trauma-informed practice into those spaces and to try and think about doing things differently. Because um, I think if systems aren't working in a joined-up way, one example of the impact that can have is it might mean that individuals or parents or carers or family members have to retell their stories over and over again um, as they navigate the system and come into contact with lots of different services, especially for people who've been in the system for a really long time. So people who do experience multiple disadvantage. Um, And I work with a group of care leaders, actually, as part, they do some lived experience input into my trauma-informed system program that I lead on. And one of the um, young people the other day was telling me that she got so used to retelling her story that actually she normalizes it. Um, And she very much disassociates from it in that way. And where that's left her actually in her life is that she'll retell her story and the extent of her trauma to complete strangers on a relatively regular basis. And that actually places her at further risk of harm. She's more vulnerable as a result. She's actually come to harm and been in danger as a result of that. And so I suppose that's a bit one one example of how the system under itself has kind of almost stripped her of her kind of boundaries and be able to protect herself. Um, 
and in that sense you know that's when she needed it the most and actually that's someone as a child especially being in care you know she should have been cared for by the system but the system in of itself is preventing herself from actually trying to do that in a way which you know naturally she would develop um and I think as well you know our understanding of trauma adversity as I said it can't be separated out from the kind of social and the political and the cultural context um but actually historically our services and our system they're not set up to think about those intersections of trauma um and the context which may they occur and I guess the way they impact individuals and communities and how they view the world and how they engage with services and that's if they can access services at all really um and I guess in that way systems can really compound those kind of structural inequalities um and experiences of trauma adversity and that's why I think it's so important that we don't narrow our focus of what we consider to be trauma adversity too 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 much because I think that um, we need to recognise and validate things like racial trauma and intergenerational trauma, community traumas, um, yeah. so that we're not kind of recreating another trauma within the systems that we kind of exist in and I think Natalie mentioned it as well you know we have a really traumatized workforce you know we've been experiencing an enormous amount of stress and burnout um, really overstretched and I think that in that sense, how we care for our workforce and how we care for each other, and if that's being met with compassion, is another way that existing within a kind of system or within organisations that make up the system um, can really damage people in that sense. Um, you know, are we supporting in the best way? You know, what are our expectations of what we're asking people to do? Um, and I think that's, yeah, massively impactful for people. Yeah, definitely. And you think of like there's such huge groups of people that are all sort of like mirroring each other's trauma all in that, you know, all in very similar environments, exposed to trauma on a daily basis within their roles. You know, thinking of like, you know, perhaps nurses and A&E and, you know, how, how are they, how are they going to have uh, things in place in order to help them work in a, a trauma informed way um, when they're so they're so busy and it's all sort of compounding on top of each other. So, so, so how do you, Hazel? No pressure. Um, <laughs> so, so, what, so what, what do you do then? What, what is the work that happens to try and help to create change on a systems level? Yes, golden question, Moira. Golden question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in terms of how I try and do that, try being the operative word. Um, no, I think getting people to connect with the relevance and the importance of trauma-informed practice to me is the key aspect of it. Um, through research and experience, um, we know that getting strategic governance and leadership involved in trauma-informed practice is massively important. Um, you know, as Ananya said, people are already doing the doing quite a lot. Um, and actually, they might not call it trauma-informed practice, but people get it a bit more when they're working directly with people because they're seeing it yeah. and feeling it. But a big part of what I do is really raise people's awareness of why trauma-informed practice is relevant to all because I think that once they understand that and once they see the impact as you said Natalie of that kind of those mirroring processes and that importance to model care and compassion and trauma-informed ways of working and creating safety within organizations and systems for ourselves as workers but then also to extend that then to others is absolutely vital I think especially in the context of where we all are there's only so much emotional capacity that people have and if people aren't cared for themselves then how they're expected to extend that care beyond you know what I mean so I think um yeah I think a lot of the time it's still thought of as quite a, on a patient or a service user level and people kind of mm. other it in that sense in kind of more leadership positions or in terms of management it's easier to think about trauma adversity when it's not you're not connecting with it it's not happening to you but the reality is we all bring our own stories and our own experiences we're all impacted in some way by either the work that we do or our own lives and what we bring to it and I think it's really vital that people see it as that and they don't just kind of other it to kind of oh trauma-informed practice is only for people experiencing complex trauma no I mean I think if you look at you know, the principles of trauma-informed practice, I think they're just really basic human stuff. Like everyone yeah. would want to have those principles extended yeah. to them. Because um, I think actually people who are in leadership positions have a real responsibility, but also they have a real opportunity to model this for the system and for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work that I do is to kind of get strategic commitment so trying to get a commitment to trauma-informed practice within strategy, for example. Um, and some people would argue against that and say, well, what does it mean? It's just meaningless. It's just a buzzword. And I think that's where the real work begins. Because um, we sort of, in the area that I work in, we've get adopted, I guess, the SAMHSA kind of definition of trauma-informed practice. So to think about realising, recognising, resisting, responding, but also to bring relationships into that model too, to really think about everything that we do is about our interactions with others and how we function within our roles is about relationship to each yeah. other, 
whether that's in terms of relationships with another organization or whether that's within our own line management or how we kind of respond to others. And I think that's massively key um, as well. But I think that um, the other aspect of that is really developing a shared knowledge and a shared understanding and approach because in a similar way um i think people who have experienced trauma in adversity um they can have a really trauma-informed organization who meet their needs really well they feel very safe there but the likelihood is they're not only going to come in contact with that service so they're also going to you know have response from another service and that might feel completely mm-hmm. different so then they're just left lost again in their own trauma responses trying to think how to navigate the world in a safe way where they're not too sure what to expect or whether they'll be held or not, how safe they are within that. And I think it's really important then to get that shared language and commitment and approach. Um, so one way that we're doing that locally is um, we have a knowledge and skills framework, so kind of a template of actually like what are we talking about when we talk about trauma adversity or when we're talking about trauma-informed practice and what are the, some of the ways that we can do that. Because um, then I think it's always a point to refer back to and we can kind of create the shared commitment. So those are some of the ways, I guess. Um, but how that looks like in practice and how that feels for people is, you know, obviously it depends from setting to setting. Um, and that's okay. Yeah, but- people get worried about that. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? It is going to look different from setting to setting because each organisation, you know, thinking about different organisations, they've all got different like uh, agendas, I suppose, sort of a bad word to use, but I guess like, you know, outcomes, targets, uh, people that they're supporting. Um, and the staff are going to be under di- different but similar pressures. Uh, when you were, mm. you're just making me think, when you were talking about like relationships um, and the sort of importance of that, I think it's, it's, it isn't just about like, you know, building good relationships with the people that you're supporting, say, you know, right on that front line. But um, having that, having a shared understanding between different organisations is, is so important. I'm just reflecting on like times when, um, especially when supporting, you know, women who were street sex working. Um, I remember always feeling like I was always having to fight, you know, like mirroring their fight with other organisations trying to get their needs met. Um, and, you know, actually getting into like heated conversations with other professionals who might not necessarily be um, meeting my needs as a professional and therefore the survivor that I'm supporting their needs. Um, and just sort of reflecting on that, I'm just thinking like, you know, that's that's really hard, isn't it? Because I'm in my bubble, in my sort of organisational system. And this is the organisation that I am getting <laughs> angsty with is in their bubble with their own needs and their own pressures. Um, and and that can, you know, add on so much more um, fight, so much more uh, trauma, I guess, like to when a job's already very challenging. Um, mm-hmm. So I was just thinking about how, you know, if there is this, uh, you know, the aim of having a system-wide sort of approach might not be that you're all doing exactly the same things, but you've got a shared language, a shared commitment um, that can help break down perhaps not just that us and them in terms of like, you know, the people who are supporting, but sometimes that us and them can ha- that can happen between different organisations. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think um, we also just... I quite like the phased approach to thinking about trauma-informed practice as well in terms of becoming trauma-aware and trauma-sensitive, mm. you know, informed, responsive. Um, and people do use different models, but that for me just feels very accepting, I guess, of actually that organisations are different and we're at different stages yeah. of this journey and it's a massive long-term commitment. And like you said, there's, you know, there's challenges and opportunities in different places and that will look different from a prison to a school to a GP surgery. Um, and I think often trauma-informed practice is thought about as a health and social care thing, um, but actually, or just for the voluntary sector. And so law enforcement mm. agencies might just be like, oh, how on earth? Do you know what I mean? How on earth are we going to go about doing this? But I think, like you said, Moy, I think if... Um, we have these kinds of a shared approach and a shared understanding that's something to refer back to. And I think that, but it does involve courage and it does involve humility. And I think sometimes that's a challenge and a barrier in and of itself. I think, you know, some, if you think of children's services, for example, they're under intense scrutiny all the time in terms of their decision-making in terms of, you know, that kind of really, risk culture that they're having to exist within Mm. so to then sit and be like actually we're probably only trauma aware at this point you know that's actually like it's it takes humility and takes courage to do but I think that hopefully it will create more of a culture of acceptance in terms of organizationally so that we can feel safer with the reality of where we are and what we're working towards um 
And I think that it's almost like you need that kind of shared understanding as well, because we're Bristol City Council, for example, are doing some work around trauma-informed commissioning um, to think about what that is and what that looks like in practice and what the expectations of services would be if you were asking them to be trauma-informed and how would you know what those key indicators were. Um, and so I think it almost all needs to sort of work in parallel to make sure that we're all speaking about the same thing at the same time and um, to get that shared understanding. Um, yeah, because people get put off otherwise that they feel that they're not, the, you know, we can't possibly be there. We can't possibly be the same as that yeah. service. And that's OK. Like, it really is. I think that in an ideal world, everyone would be really well resourced and have the capacity to put towards this. And that would be great. And that's what the gold standard is in a way. But I think that actually yeah. the reality is we're dealing with parts of the system and organizations who have very little resource and very little free time. And they're still trying to, you know, there's still work that can be done. There's still wins that can be gained within those contexts, I think. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, I think that's the really important thing to remember, isn't it? Like that actually there are like things that are manageable, changes that are manageable within organisations to start that process. It's not about mm. expecting everybody to go from, you know, like you said, that tiered approach. You're not going from uh, sort of one stage to then being fully trauma informed. There's knowing that it's that long term journey and just starting it, having that mm. point of reference is so important um yeah it's really it's really such important work that's that's happening to to sort of bring all of that together you know from you know like we've been saying from from that sort of individual level working directly with survivors to then how how that person working with survivors supported and then how is the whole system then working from that perspective too because actually all of it needs to be working together in order for the vision <laughs> of trauma-informed um, practices to be actually to actually work, um, it doesn't happen in isolation, and it can't. It can't. Um, it's great. God, it's really, <laughs> really interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like we could just stay on talking about this all afternoon. <laughs> um, I just want to offer an open up a bit of space I know um, we've got time um is there any 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 thoughts any questions that you might have for each other uh, anything that's cropped up at all uh, while we've been talking something that just occurred to me listening mm. Hazel to you now about uh, Bristol City Council even thinking about it from a commissioning perspective I thought you know it's quite powerful that it's actually being named you know that the word trauma is being used on that scale you know and it doesn't have to be you know because i would like you know there's a psychologically informed you know environment and stuff like that as well you know but there's been like there's various terms that get used you know but i think the fact that it's actually acknowledging that there is trauma you know people are working with trauma and therefore might mm. experience trauma themselves you know it's quite a big deal and i'm thinking you know when i was training to be a therapist the idea of vicarious trauma also seemed like a bit taboo and stuff like that. But as far mm -hmm. as I understand it now, you know, with the with some trauma professionals, they don't even recur, refer to it as vicarious trauma. It's just trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, it's yeah. True. So I thought, yeah, I just had a weird moment of feeling quite hopeful. Mm. Good. You know, with a, yeah, exactly. Thanks, Mara. Yeah, no, I just something like but this is a good sign. You know, we live in an increasingly polarized world where people are being othered all the time, where relationships mm. are breaking down. But we're here mm -hmm. talking about, you know, the the impact of being in relationship, you know, yeah. with our own trauma mm. and other people's trauma, you know, and trying to yeah, still make I, it work and not right. be harmful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I think like in, in the area that I work and we talk about trauma adversity, we use adversity as well. I think because some people really still do struggle, like they struggle with the word trauma. It's really emotive. Some people wouldn't feel that they connected with it. Um, but also recognizing, that I guess, that adverse experiences can be traumatic in and of themselves. But I think definitely, in, even in terms of the funding for my role, that came out, I suppose, of the recognition that when COVID occurred, all of us experienced mm. trauma and adversity to some degree in terms of either our grief or our loss or uncertainty or fear or changes, you know, to our economic situation, whatever that was for each person. And I think that felt like such a, 
in a strange way, a bit of a unifying experience, which got people to think mm-hmm. like, oh God, actually, how are we responding to this? Like, this is massive. But I mean, us who've been doing this for a while and get it, knew that this was always, you know, relevant and important. But, you know, it has brought people to start thinking about it and thinking about how to respond to it and the need to respond to it in a new way, I think. Um, and so in that sense, I think, yeah, hopefully debunking some of the kind of fear around language is really important. I do think it's important to name it, though. I think it's important to kind of have almost a bit of a, a central point to come back to, to say, no, this is about trauma-informed practice, because it's encouraging. And when people are like, oh, but it's a new word, it's a buzzword, I've been doing it all the time. I'm like, oh, great. Do you know what I mean? If you've been doing it all the time, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Name it as that. Say, I am being trauma-informed. Like, think yeah. about the impact that will have by, you know, sharing what this could look like in practice with others. That's, that's how we're going to learn, and that's just how it's going to get embedded. So I sort of don't get too put off by that in that sense. I don't want to dilute it in any way in terms of a, an approach because I think it's really important that we kind of yeah champion it and take it forward and kind mm. of realize when we're doing it well or realize what mm. we need to work towards in that sense yeah yeah absolutely thanks Hazel oh well, well thanks everybody it's been really interesting um as I thought it would be getting <laughs> uh, the three of you into a space together so that we could talk about this more this uh, I mean there's just so much that we could say on these things um and you know on the challenges um but also you know what we can imagine for the future of uh, trauma-informed working so um and thanks to everybody for listening as well and taking that time um i hope that it's been a useful uh, a useful resource to help you deepen your understanding of trauma-informed working and uh, look at it from some different perspectives mm-hmm.